So, all right, we're going to continue our study in the Gospel of Luke, and we've come this morning to one of my favorite stories in the Bible. I know I say that a lot. I have a lot of favorite stories in the Bible. It's just one of them. Uh, but I really like this one because I love to fish. Okay, and if you know me well, you know that I love to fish. And uh, one morning recently, I went fishing with a friend, and we both did pretty well. We were out there several hours. We caught several smaller bass. We were bass fishing. And after a few hours, uh, we decided to finish up, and we started walking back along the shore. And as we were walking, just kind of getting in those final casts, right? I never want to quit until I just absolutely have to. So I'm making these final casts, and it's getting kind of hot outside, and so bass don't usually feed as much in the middle of a hot summer day. But on my final cast, I hooked onto a really nice fish, probably about four pounds. So my best fish of the day came at the most unexpected moment. And it reminded me of this story from the life of Jesus. So we're going to begin Luke chapter 5, reading in verse 1. It says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Okay, that's just another name for the Sea of Galilee. They're still in that region, Sea of Galilee. Verse 2. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Luke gives us these details because they're actually sort of important. What this tells us is that it was morning time because fishermen in that time fished at night. During the daytime, the fish were more likely to see the net coming, and so they fished at night. And what this tells us is that the workday was almost over. The, the nets were being washed out. And so the type of nets that they used, they fished at night, and then they washed out their nets every morning. Verse 3. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, we met Simon in chapter 4, Jesus asked Simon to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So if you were to go to Israel and, and go to this area near Capernaum, there are inlets along the coast of the Sea of Galilee that form natural amphitheaters. And Jesus would often use these as teaching venues. And so if you put out into the water, the, the water helps to just kind of spread your, your, the sound of your voice up into these little inlets. Verse 4. And when Jesus had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And most of us would not realize that this is actually a very ridiculous command that Jesus gives Peter. It doesn't make any sense. Now, if you remember, Luke has already given us some details that tell us that these men had just finished fishing at night. And that's when they normally fished. And they also normally fished in shallow waters, not in the deep waters. 
And so Jesus telling Simon to do this, it makes no sense. And Peter immediately questions the command. Verse 5, Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. You can really sort of sense the frustration. Simon already knows who Jesus is because he's the one that healed his mother-in-law in in chapter 4. So he knows that Jesus is a rabbi. He knows that Jesus has a special gift for teaching. We know that he is capable of miracles. Simon has witnessed at least one miracle. And so he knows that Jesus is an important person But what's happening in this moment is that Jesus is now stepping into Peter's world. You realize this is Peter's best skill. This is how Peter feeds his family. Okay, so I want you to imagine if I were to go into Memphis and I go to uh, Josh Edwards' fabrication shop at Barnhart Crane and Rigging. And I walk into his fab shop, and I say, all right, I need you to weld this thing over here to that thing over there. And, like, and here's how it's done. No, bad things would happen. Josh can tell you. I don't, I don't do these things well. That would not be good. And so Peter, thinking that Jesus is a rabbi assumes that what Jesus is asking him to do will be a complete waste of time and energy. And yet he obeys anyway. Isn't that interesting? Because he recognizes the authority of Jesus even though he doesn't understand. He calls Jesus Master. He says, at your word, I will do it. Right? So Peter demonstrates trust in Jesus even when he doesn't understand what Jesus is asking him to do. And that's important. We'll come back to that. Verse 6. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. I'd say Jesus made his point, right? Now watch how Peter responds. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. O Lord. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. This is the first time in the Gospel of Luke that the word sinner is used. Luke will go on to use the word sinner 17 times. And it's striking to me that Peter chooses to describe himself in this way because there's nothing in the story to suggest that Peter was known as a particularly sinful man. This word will most often be used in the Gospel of Luke by the religious leaders to describe 
tax collectors, and prostitutes, and criminals. But Peter seems to recognize how different he is from Jesus. How unworthy he is to even be in the presence of Jesus. And it reminds me of a response that the prophet Isaiah had when he was given a vision of the throne room of God. He said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. It's a prophet speaking, and yet in the presence of God, the holy God, he recognizes his sin. It's also important to notice that Peter changes the title that he uses for Jesus. He called him Master before the miracle, which is a a title of respect. But now he calls Jesus Lord. Kurios. And so far in Luke, that word has only been used in one way. Of God. And so Luke is beginning to reveal the true nature of Jesus, that Jesus has not only come to tell us about the Lord, Jesus is the Lord God. Verse 9, For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So you may be aware of some of this background. And and as I've preached through the Gospels over the years, if you've been a part of this church, you you know that I, I often talk about this because it's an important part of the Gospel story. In Jesus' day, the most important people were not necessarily the richest people. Um, They were the religious leaders, at least in Jewish society. That's who was important. That's who was respected, was the people who uh, who were serving in roles in organized religion. So people like priests, scribes, rabbis, these were the ones that everyone looked up to. They were the best of the best. They were the cream of the crop. And so if you were born in Israel as a Jewish boy in the first century, then you would have started organized Jewish school around age six, and your entire task was to learn the Old Testament. And by age 10, they were supposed to have the first five books of the Bible memorized. Not just know about it, but like have the whole thing memorized, okay? Well, as you can expect, by the end of this, most of those kids dropped out to learn the family trade because they could not memorize five books. It was incredibly difficult, and they were doing all this by word of mouth. Um, And so the ones that succeeded, they would be, and it would be a small number of them, but they would go on to try to memorize the rest of the Old Testament, okay? That's a lot of words. 
And of course, by the end of that, most of them again had dropped out. But the very few in Jewish society who were able to memorize the Bible, they could apply to become disciples of rabbis and continue their education and one day possibly to become rabbis themselves. Jesus was a rabbi. He was recognized as one. And the men that Jesus calls to follow him were not rabbi material according to the culture. They clearly had not done the things that they were supposed to do. The men that that Jesus calls to follow him were essentially dropouts. Notice that they don't go to him applying to be students. Jesus goes to them. They were fishing, which meant that they weren't far enough in the long in the process to become disciples of a rabbi. They clearly had not memorized everything. They were not smart enough according to their culture. And so these young men, all of whom were probably between the ages of 14 and 20, were given the opportunity by Jesus to follow a rabbi. One of the most important people in their culture. And so they immediately get up and they leave because it was an opportunity that they did not believe they had earned or would ever have the opportunity to have. So I want you to think about this. Jesus calls these young men to follow him, and no one else believed that they were good enough to be his disciples. So he takes people that the world thought were the least likely to succeed... There's a message in here for all of us elders and deacons in the room who who are tempted to think a lot of ourselves. And yet, Jesus takes these men who were, by everyone else's standards, least likely to succeed, and he turns them into apostles. Now, they have a lot to learn. They need to be humbled. They need to be shaped by him. But I think it's important to see that Jesus did not go looking for the the best and the brightest. He picked the least. And this shows us the heart of God, right? His kingdom is for everyone. It's for the rich and the poor. It is for the handsome and the ugly. It is for the smart and the not so smart. It is for all types of people. Jesus wants all kinds of people to be represented in His kingdom. And so if Jesus calls you, it is not because you are smart enough to understand that call or because you are good enough morally to have earned His call or because of anything that you did. Jesus wants us, uh, He calls us to prove that He can turn anyone that He wants to into a child of God. And even into a leader in His church. I also think it's important to recognize that He's the one that initiates this relationship. Hear me say this. This is important. It's not just 
heady theology. This actually has important application in our lives. We do not initiate our relationship with God. God always initiates His relationship with us. If you are a born-again Christian, it is because God came to you and called you and invited you into a relationship that we do not deserve. Follow me, he says, and I will make. Okay, Jesus is saying, I will go ahead of you. I will lead. We will follow. He will do the work that is necessary to turn us into something useful. We may, under, we may not understand what He's doing or why, which the story illustrates. But what does Jesus want from us? I just want you to trust me, right? I want you to follow me. I've got this, but you're coming with me. Notice also Jesus says He will make them fishers of men. This is one of those illustrations in the Bible that I don't think we think through enough exactly what Jesus might be saying here. Now, as a fisherman, I can tell you, at least based on my experience, I've never met a fish that wanted to be caught. Okay, so I don't ever go out, stand on the shore or in a boat and, and get my rod out and fish just start jumping in, right? Like, right up on the shore, like, please take me home and eat me. That is not how fishing works. You have to trick them. <laughs> you have to catch them, right? Fish don't want to be caught. Fish get yanked onto the shore, whether they like it or not. And that is the metaphor that Jesus chooses to describe evangelism and discipleship. And that's not an accident, right? Fish don't swim into the net on purpose. They don't consider the net and then make a decision about it. If they see the net, they run. They have to get swept up by it. And I can tell you from my own Christian experience, that's exactly what happened with me. I was not looking for Jesus. Truth be told, I was running from God in that moment. And God came, and He called, and He yanked me into the boat. Listen to what Jeremiah 16 says. Verse 16 says, Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. For my eyes are all on their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. But first, I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because they have polluted my land 
with the carcasses of their detestable idols and have filled my inheritance with their abominations. That's some, that's some rough language, okay? In that context, what is God's fishing expedition about? It's about judgment, right? It's not about salvation, okay? Getting caught in Jeremiah 16 is not a good thing. But Jesus takes an illustration that in the Old Testament meant something bad and he flips it. He's now calling his disciples to help him rescue people from the judgment that they actually deserve. That they don't even realize is coming. And we're going to see this more and more in the Gospel of Luke, that Jesus is pursuing people who are not worthy, who don't even realize that they're in danger. Is that you? Has He set the hook? Is He calling you to follow Him? But there's more that I want us to see in this story. Once Jesus catches you, He demands priority over everything else. And this is usually where preachers go in the story. Okay, so I needed to... I want to say the other stuff first because we miss that usually. This part is probably a little more familiar to you, at least in part. Once Jesus catches you, He does demand priority over everything else. So you may know fishermen in that time were not actually poor. They made a better living than most people. In order to own the boat and have the nets, typically they had hired workers helping them. And so these four men, they were not leaving behind a bad life. They were actually taking a huge risk. This was their family business. And to understand that, you have to think family, family in the first century Jewish world, that meant everything back then. They had probably been in the fishing business for many generations. And they would fish again, even during their ministry. They, they would see their families, but this call to immediately leave it for that moment and to trust Jesus, it is a radical thing. Jesus is asking them to make following Him a priority over even the family business. That is part of this story. So to try to put that into modern American terms, it's as if Jesus is saying to them, I'm the priority over your dreams and your career, your dating life, your spouse, your kids, your financial plans. He's claiming that priority over all of those things. In other words, Jesus is not asking us to fit Him into our busy schedule whenever we can do it. Whenever there's nothing more important or better going on, right? 
He is demanding our complete and total allegiance to his kingdom. And just as it didn't with the disciples, it doesn't mean that your career and your family stop being important. Okay? This is also a misunderstanding. Sometimes pastors and churches will kind of lord it over people and say, you're not a real Christian unless you give up everything to follow Jesus and like sell it all and become a missionary, right? God's not necessarily calling all of us to do that. That's not the point of this message. These were apostles. This was a special thing in some ways. So I'm not telling you to give up your career and abandon your family or whatever. But it does, following Jesus does greatly affect how you order your life and how your faith impacts every other area of your life. In other words, you start to ask the question, how does Jesus impact my career? How does Jesus impact the way I love my family and serve my neighbors? How does Jesus impact the way I spend my free time? And mostly it just means that you begin to trust God with all those other things. Jesus will later say, seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. And it may not look the way you planned it. But you're following the king of the universe. I think that's a good trade. So what Jesus did for these young men was show them that the world is bigger than their little plans, right? Going out night after night and catching a few fish, right? He, he just demolishes it it's so much bigger than what they thought they were worth. He shows them how to care about people who have nothing. He shows them how to forgive and how to love and how to lead. And do you understand the truth is that every single person that God calls into His church, if He has saved you, if He has called you, into His kingdom, if He's made that possible, do you understand that really who we are is we are all spiritual dropouts who have been given a call from Jesus and have been enabled to serve in His kingdom. And He might be calling some of you today to abandon the life that you think you need in order to follow Him into a bigger story. And that story begins with us believing that Jesus did what we cannot do. He did what you cannot do. He brought forgiveness for your sins on the cross, and He traded His righteousness to us. This is what we believe. And if you get all that in, in order, you, you recognize that it's actually really is something that only God can do. And all we do is receive it with empty hands and follow Him. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory. 
and grace. Amen. Let's pray.